pray again. Gracious Father, as we come to your word, it is with an expectation, Father, that you will speak to us. Not because of the words I have to say, but Father, because of uh, this is your word. And so I ask, Lord, that you would indeed be at work in us, uh, be at work uh, in our hearts. Help us to believe the word that you have for us. Give us eyes to see the word that you have for us and to hear it and to receive it. Uh, with Not just receive it, but receive it gladly. Uh, help us to see your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Just before I came up, I breathed through the wrong pipe. So <clears throat> hopefully I can make it through this. All right. Okay. Oh, boy. I was talking normally just moments ago. Didn't, <clears throat> didn't, I didn't sound like... Uh, anyway, if you guys remember the Brady Bunch. Anyway, that's, that's not really my introduction. So uh, I do, uh, do want to start by talking about something that I remember growing up, and that is um, my family would often travel uh, and visit uh, the Amana colonies. Uh, it's a, it's a, a group of colonies... Uh, I, I have to call them colonies, uh, in, uh, just past Iowa City. <clears throat> and I, I think the first time I went, I was about four or five years old. And the colonies uh, themselves were settled in 1856 by a religious community that was fleeing persecution from the state church in Germany. They landed in Iowa because the landscape and the climate really reminded them, them of their home in Germany. And so they knew that they could farm the land, that they could take care of themselves and live off the land when, when they went there. And I remember as a kid that the whole place was just amazing to me. It was filled with historic buildings. There was a woolen mill that still wove blankets. There was a furniture shop where each piece of solid wood furniture was custom made by a woodworker from the very start to the very finish. There was a meat market that still butchered their own animals and smoked their own meat. There was a museum that explained the history of the colonies and the church. I will say, I have never grown tired of visiting Amana. But what made the place so captivating uh, to me, or, or does make it so captivating for me, wasn't the interesting architecture uh, or the church history or even what I think is a very delicious Amana, uh, or I should say German food, <clears throat> but it's uniquely Amana. Um, the attraction for me was my Oma. You see, there, I called her my Oma. Well, I actually called her Florence, but <clears throat> there's, there's a woman there. Uh, her name was Oma, or we called her Oma, and uh, the attraction was, was her and the connection between our families. You see, sometime around the end of World War II, when my grandfather was stationed overseas, my grandmother uh, lived near base and worked on base, and uh, she met this young woman with a strong German accent. So think about that. End of World War II, young woman, strong German accent, uh, who came from Iowa. Well, they ended up working together, and eventually they became friends. And their friendship grew to the point that, that she actually invited Florence and George to move in with her. She said, why don't you move in with me? I'm in this big house. You know, my husband is overseas. 
Um, you have to live in this army barracks. Why don't you move in with me? And so uh, they did. And that friendship continued over the years. In fact, really over generations. After my own grandmother died, Florence and George continued to be part of our lives. And she loved me. I'm not supposed to cry in this part. She loved me like one of her own grandchildren. And so even as a young child, um, when I learned about Amana history, it always felt like it was part of my history, even though I wasn't connected to the Amana colonies at all. But it felt like my history because of my connection to Florence and George. It felt like my history, even if it was only by unspoken or informal adoption. And while I, I do find history interesting, and church history certainly is something that I find interesting, I know that if it wasn't the, the strong personal connection and the family ties, the history of Amana would really hold limited interest or relevance for me. And as we begin, as we dive back into the book of Joshua, I, I think we're confronted with a similar situation. Right? We're so far removed from the history and the geography that we read about, starting in chapter 13, that it just kind of doesn't really capture us. Right? We're so far removed from the history and the places that are named in not only chapter 13, but then the following chapters, that we fail to feel the weight of their significance. And for those of you who uh, were not here or simply do not remember when I preached through the first 12 chapters of Joshua in the fall of 2020, <clears throat> it's been a few, been a few years, <clears throat> let me try and set the stage. And, and Mike really did uh, begin setting the stage for us as he read in uh, Genesis 15. But I do want to take some time as we enter back in. So don't worry, it, we'll get to the first point, but it might take us a little while. So, but back in Genesis Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And in Genesis 15, 5, uh, we read that, uh, that God brought Abraham outside and said, look to the heaven and number the stars if, you can, if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram, at the time he was Abram, but he becomes Abraham, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said to him, O Lord, how am, I, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And the Lord then directs Abraham to make a sacrifice, to set up the sacrifice. And then in verse 13, the Lord says to him, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But, when I, uh, but, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with a great possession. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then in verse 18, we read that the Lord made the covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give this land, right? So the, the land where he was at. From the, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, 
the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And as, you look, as we look through the remainder of the book of Genesis, we know it's really a story of Abraham's offspring. It's his children. So Abraham and Sarah finally have a baby boy named Isaac. And fast forward, Isaac then marries and, uh, uh, Rebecca, and they have twins, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, though, is the one who receives the birthright. And eventually then, Jacob has 12 sons. And these end up being the, the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons, whose name is Joseph, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt. Fast forward, what does God do? He, he raises Joseph up to be second only to Pharaoh. God uses Joseph to save the people of Egypt from a famine. But not only Egypt, but also the surrounding countries. Because God uses then that famine to lead Joseph's brothers and family up to Egypt. First to try and buy food, and then Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And so Jacob, who is now called Israel, and their entire family relocate to Egypt under the blessing of Pharaoh. And we read in Genesis 46, uh, starting with, with verse 26, that all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 people. 70 people went up, well, more than that once you include uh, spouses, but uh, the wives, but 70 people. Time then passes and Abraham's descendants, now called the Israelites, they multiplied in Egypt. And just, just as the Lord had promised they would. But a new Pharaoh comes along and enslaves the Israelites. So then God raised up Moses who led the Israelites out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. Exodus 12, 37 says, And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. They had grown incredibly. They had become numerous like the stars. And so as they're led out of Egypt, Moses leads them out of Egypt. And Moses led the people of God through the wilderness with the destination of the promised land. It took a long time, and it took much longer because of their disobedience, but that's another story for another time. But they were always heading toward the land that God had promised to Abraham. Moses did tons of stuff. He's a great guy. Talk more about him later, but, uh, but he never stepped foot into the promised land. In fact, right before his death, the Lord takes him up on a mountain and he says, look into the promised land. And Moses dies. In fact, the book of Joshua opens up with the death of Moses. If you want to flip back to chapter 1, we see in Joshua 1, verse 1, the following. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, 
you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Remember, Joshua is going to be able to do what Moses could never do. And that's actually step foot into this promised land. And he says, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all that the law, all the law that, the, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Wow, right? What a promise to be given. And then verse 10 says that, and then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp. And he commanded the people, prepare your provisions for within three days you're to pass over this Jordan to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. This is weighty history, right? This is, this is an exciting time. And then over the, the first 12 chapters of the book of Joshua, we see how the Lord used Joshua to lead the Israelites into the land and to take possession of it. What we find in the book of Joshua is a testimony to God's faithfulness to keep his promises. Over the span of lifetimes, over the span of generations of, of centuries, even millennium. In fact, through all of time, the Lord is the God who keeps his promise, always. And so now as we look at Joshua chapter 13, we're gonna, I want to draw out two aspects of how God's faithfulness can be seen, I think, in our text. And the first one is that the Lord alone provides his people with a sufficient Savior. The Lord alone provides his people with a sufficient savior. And so after the death of Moses, as we said, God raised up Joshua to lead his people. And Joshua's very name means the Lord saves. In fact, trans, uh, placed into uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, yeah. Placed into the Greek, the New Testament Greek, that name Joshua could also be pronounced Jesus. Right? They have the same name, right? So, so think about that, right? The Lord saves. And now as we enter into chapter 13, verse 1, we read that Joshua was old. He was old. And the work had not yet been completed. So now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years. And there remains very, uh, yet very much land to possess. 
This is the land that, that remain, yet remains. And so then he goes through a description. Right? He says, all the region of the Philistines and all, all those of uh, the Gershorites. And, and we won't, I won't read all of that for you right now, but uh, Mike did it for us. Pronounce all those names. Thank you, Mike, for doing that. <clears throat> By the way, if you're reading in coming weeks, I, I won't make you do all the names of everything, right? But there's this description of, of the land. And as we think about that, we think, there's a lot of work left to do. What have they been doing the last 12 chapters? Well, Joshua had led the people through numerous battles and military victories. There was a battle of Jericho, which I'm sure we're all familiar with, right, where God caused the walls of the city to collapse with the sound of the trumpet blasts and the shouts of God's people. And the battle where God caused the sun to stand still until Israel was victorious. And as we look at this description in the first few verses of chapter 13, one commentator pointed out that a careful look of what he describes as the land that remains shows that it consisted of what's called the Philistine Corridor in the southwest of Canaan and in the north a swath of territory about 50 miles wide the northern edge of which extended uh, inward, uh, inward toward uh, Labo Hamath, almost 50 miles north of Damascus. All this land was in one sense really just on the edges of Israel's land. Dale Davis writes, if such was the land that remained, it implies that, that Israel was, had, had achieved a significant measure of dominance in the main part of Canaan. So a lot of the work was done. There was more to be done, but a lot of it was done. And it wasn't total dominance, as we'll see, but it was substantial. God had accomplished so much under Joshua's leadership. He says, but there's more to be done. We'll revisit this, the same theme over, over the coming weeks. And Joshua is no longer the young warrior who will lead the charge of God's people into battle that we read about in previous chapters. I think it can come as a startling moment of truth when we realize our own human limitations. Right, when we discover that we may never accomplish all that we had hoped or planned to accomplish in this lifetime. Think about Joshua, right? He, he got to do what Moses couldn't do and all that got accomplished now he's an old man. I think that realization can lead some people to turn inward, maybe many people to turn inward. Right? Either doubling down on their efforts and becoming workaholics who are obsessed with their work or their career, trying to make up for whatever they hadn't accomplished up to that point. Some people reaching what they see as their limitation may become resentful of all those years of labor, all that they had invested in without really achieving what they had once imagined that they could. Certainly Joshua himself could have felt discouraged or resentful at this point. But that's not what we see. See, Joshua trusted the Lord. He had watched Moses, the great leader of God's people, climb up that mountain and look into the promised land knowing that his own duties were done. 
and that God would provide another to carry on. I think this is, as the people of God, this, this is part of the Christian life. We never fully arrive in this life. Right? Our modern-day culture is so goal-oriented. We, we think we got a three-year, five-year, ten-year goal, or even just the goal for the next day. And if we don't tick off all the boxes, we feel like we're failures. But I think part of life in a fallen world as finite people is that we need to realize that life goes on even when we don't accomplish all that we'd hoped for. I think the reason for that, especially as God's people, the reason is because the work is ultimately God's work. He allows us to take a part, but it's ultimately his work. And in the second half of verse 6, we read the Lord's words to Joshua. Right? He says, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance as I've commanded you. Now therefore, divide the land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and the half-tribe of Manasseh. You see, God was using Joshua to fulfill his promise to bring God's people into the land and to give them an inheritance. But it didn't depend on Joshua's strength to accomplish the work. The Lord himself would, would be the one who would drive out the inhabitants of the land before the people of God. So Joshua, you just, need to, you just need to do what I've asked you. You just need to allot the land according to what I tell you. And over the next chapters, we're going to find a lot of instructions on allotting the land. In the face of Joshua's old age, God sets before him these words of promise. Right? We might think that Joshua is about to retire. Certainly within a, matter of, a short matter of time, he is about to die. But God will continue to be the one who is adequate. Joshua is about to retire, but God will continue to be adequate to finish the work. He will accomplish the work. Remember how long it was that God sent this whole thing in motion? With Abraham, generations, hundreds of years. You see, the Lord alone is, uh, provides his people with sufficiency. The Lord alone provides his people with a sufficient Savior. That Savior is ultimately himself, the one who accomplishes the work. The most obvious example, clear example, I should say, is displayed through the gospel. Right? We see, what does Moses do? He, right, he saves the people out of slavery, but he dies. Joshua brings the people into the promised land, but he dies. Right? We even, as we looked at uh, uh, um, Saul, the first king, right? the, the promised one, he fails. And when we finally get to 2 Samuel, we'll find that even David himself fails. You see, throughout the Old Testament, each of God's leaders either failed or died. They never accomplished or fully finished the work. Every leader ultimately failed to deliver God's ultimate promise, uh, and that's uh, to deliver God's people from themselves, to deliver them from their sins. But God accomplished that work. God himself 
accomplish that work through the gospel, through his son, Jesus Christ, coming into the world. He is the only savior who is truly adequate. And what I mean by adequate, when I say an adequate savior, is a savior who is acceptable, right? Because every other one has been inadequate, has never been able to fully complete the task, but Christ was. The once for all savior and sacrifice See, in these verses, we see that God's promises take in the scope of his will for us, not merely the limits that we think we're likely to accomplish. And so as he tells Joshua that there's more work to be done, he knows that he will be the power behind it. And that's the reason is because as Christians, we know that the work is never about us. It's about what our faithful God is doing. It's also meant that means for us as believers, this is an application for us, is that God's never done working on us or through us. But God is never done working in and through you if you are a child of God. So if you think you've, you've like, I've lived a long Christian life, I can just kind of sit back and I don't really need to do much more. Well, that's not really Biblical. It's not how God designed us. Brent mentioned that yesterday we, uh, as leaders, we met together and we, we talked about uh, a passage from Ephesians and how the work of ministry is a work that every one of us does. Not the leaders, not just the leaders. And in fact, it's, he says in Ephesians 4 that God gives the leaders for a purpose, what? To equip the body to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is something that that each of us does. None of us gets to kind of check out or retire because none of us is insignificant in the church. As we see God coming to Joshua at the very end of his life, it's the same type of thing. God wasn't done with him. and God isn't done with us. We may feel like the things he's asking for are beyond the scope of what we can imagine. Remember, God is the one who provides the power behind it. God's the one who provides, who's doing the work. God is the master planner. And so even the work of the church, right, it's his work, not our work. But he allows us to participate in it. And that's what we see in Joshua as well. So even the mortality of, or the limitations, I should say, of any one of his servants never handicaps, handicaps the everlasting God. And so as we move on in the text, we see that the Lord alone provides his people with a sufficient savior, one who can truly save, as well as the Lord alone provides his people with a true inheritance. The following verses begin to lay out the details of the inheritance that Joshua is to allot to the various tribes of Israel. A few of the tribes had already received their inheritance under Moses uh, on the east side of the Jordan, which was, uh, which the other tribes, the, the, and the other tribes were to receive their allotments west of the Jordan. And so we read in verse 8 that uh, with the other half of the tribe of Manasseh, the Reubenites, 
And the Gadites received their, their inheritance, which Moses gave them beyond the Jordan eastward, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. From Aor, which is at the edge of the valley of Arnon, and the city that is in the middle of the valley, and all the tableland. And then he goes on and gives more and more details about these descriptions of the land. But then he, he starts talking about the history. Verse 11, he says, right, in Gilead and, and the region of the, the Gershurites and the Machathites and all the Mount of, of Hermon and all of Bashan and Selica, all the kingdom of Ad, Og in Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth and in Gedi. For he alone uh, was left of the remnant of the Refa, uh, Rephaim. And these Moses had struck and driven out. We're going to come back to it in a moment, but then we, we reach verse 13 where he says, <clears throat> And yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Gersherites, the Machathites. But Gesher and Machath dwelt in the midst of Israel to this day. Kind of passing comment, okay? They're still around. Yep, yeah, I guess that's the reason why those people are here. But to put it in context, God had commanded Israel to drive out the other nations as part of taking back the land of promise. Because he said otherwise, what would happen if you don't drive them all out is that they will tempt you. Otherwise, they will uh, bring their own gods and they'll tempt you to follow them. And here, in a somewhat matter-of-fact statement, we see that they didn't obey. They didn't drive completely, the people completely out. I want to quote, uh, quote from Dale Davis once again. He wrote, in verse 13, verse 13 seems pretty matter-of-fact. Matter-of-fact enough, he says, incomplete obedience usually is. It brings us no immediate crisis. It seldom does. However, here is, a t here is testimony to all God's people. We frequently and strangely prove faithful in the great, the great crisis of faith. We remain steadfast in severe storms, perhaps even relish the excitement of the heaviest assaults, and yet lack the tenacity, the dogged endurance, the patient plodding often required in the prosaic affairs of believing life. We're often loathed to be faithful in what we regard as little. So Israel, they conquered all of these cities, but driving everybody out, that was a little bit harder to do. As I say, it was, it was just, it's just a passing comment. But later on, their disobedience will have devastating consequences. The warning that God issued to his people actually came to pass. God's people did follow after foreign gods. God's warnings in scripture are there for a reason. In fact, it's likely that the book of Joshua was finally edited in its final form after the exile. If we think about what led to the exile, well, it was the faithfulness, faithlessness of God's people. Some of that faithlessness began right here. We see the seeds of it. And so it's a warning to us, almost as if God knows what he's doing, almost as if he knows the end from the beginning. 
that the warnings that he gives to us, they're not, they're not the kind of warnings that, that maybe an overprotective parent will give to a child saying, don't go near the street because you'll get hit by a car as the young child watches two, three, four cars go by in a week. Right? The danger's there, but come on, mom. Come on, dad. It's not a big deal. No, when the Lord gives a warning, we should take heed because he knows us. He knows our hearts and he knows the real danger of disobedience. But in these words, as I mentioned, we also find in this chapter a recounting of, of what God accomplished through Moses in obtaining the inheritances east of the Jordan, especially for the people of, of Israel who were familiar with these locations it would be kind of like, oh, you remember that tree over there? Do you remember what happened there? It was so awesome. That one victory. The descriptions of the geography, the, ty- the typography of the land that are, that are contained in these chapters, or these verses and, and these chapters, are meant to bring constant allusions to God's faithful work amidst them. So it reminds them of the warnings, but it reminds them of God's faithfulness. These detailed accounts of of geography actually are meant to point to God's faithfulness. The land itself is meant to serve as a reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. Well, I'm not going to read all of the chapter. I'll give that as an assignment for you guys to do at home. But there's one more thing that I want to bring out. And that's when we get to the very end And Mike read these verses as well. Verse 32, we read that these are the inheritances that Moses distributed in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan east of Jericho. But then verse 33, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. That seems kind of weird, right? Like, well, you got all these tribes and they're all getting land and they're all, they've got all of these inheritances, but the Levites, they don't get any land? There's, what's going on? Well, the text tells us that the people of the tribe of Levi, they did not receive an inheritance. Verse 14 actually says that the, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. No inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And he's quoting here. And then, right, as we said, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God is their inheritance. On one hand, they have no land inheritance, but they do have an inheritance. It's an interesting distinction, isn't it? We'll talk more about uh, what the Levites receive in in the coming chapters, but what we see, I think, is that the Levites received true inheritance, the true inheritance of God's people, and that is God himself. When it says that they receive the offerings, in other words, God is saying, I'm giving you what belongs to me. I'm giving it to you. The Levites, they didn't deserve these offerings. They weren't worthy of the offerings, and yet that is what God gave to the Levites. And he says the Lord himself is their offering. Right? The land, it's great, right? The land is a gift from God. 
but the true inheritance is God himself. And we actually see this reflected in the Psalms that, right, when David describes the Lord as his portion in the land of the living in that Psalm 142, and then as Sean preached for us just a few weeks ago from Psalm 73, that the Lord is the believer's portion forever. See, this is not just the Levites. This is God's people. And once again, we see this most clearly displayed in the gospel. That as believers, this is our inheritance. This is the portion that we receive. Like the Levites, we don't deserve to receive anything that is the Lord's. And yet, because of Christ's sacrifice, we're given God himself. We're given reconciliation with God. Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins so that all who would believe in him would, would be what? Children of God, brothers and sisters of Christ himself. And not only that, but think about what was it about coming into the land that was so special for the people of Israel? It, well, it was that God would be in the land, right? That God would be present with them. They would have a permanent home. But as Christians, what do, what do we have? Well, the Spirit himself indwells each of us. He's made his home in us. That's way better than a land promise. You see, the true inheritance of the believer is not land, it's not possessions, it's not anything that we own. God himself. He is our hope in this life. He's our hope in death that we'll be, that we'll be united with him forever. He alone is our true and lasting inheritance. He's our worth He's the thing that we can boast upon, not, not our own works, but what he's done. He is indeed our greatest treasure. When we become Christians, right, we are, we are adopted into God's family. And so in, in a very real sense, this is our history. This is our history, spiritually, our history. We say, well, yeah, not by blood. Well, nor was Rahab by blood, but she was an inheritor of God's promises. And so are we through Jesus Christ and faith in him. But instead of any promised land, our inheritance is Christ himself. And our future inheritance awaits for us in the new heavens and the new earth which is much more glorious than any land that we see here today. Any land that was back then as well. You know, when I think about what it was that has continued to attract me to Amanda, my, my Oma has, has died. She, she's no longer living. But there's still something about going to Amana that still has an attraction to me. And I, and I remember uh, that I, I used to think as a kid that maybe I would grow up and I, I, would, I would buy a house there and, and I could live there and I could be part of that community. It wasn't because I necessarily agreed with all of their theology, because I don't, uh, with the Amana Church. Just edit that out maybe of the sermon. Anyway, 
but there was a sense of longing to belong. I longed to belong to a community that was much more permanent. See, I grew up moving around uh, all over the place. In fact, Janesville, after 14 and a half years, is the location I have lived at the longest in my life. Right? Some of you have lived in Janesville your whole life, and you're like, whoa, you're still new here. And for you, that's true, but this is the longest I've lived in one place. But when I looked to a manna, I would see not only something that connected to my childhood, but, but something that connected to my mom's childhood. I would think back all the generations and all the history and all the attraction. But you know what? Even if I moved to a manna, it might feel kind of like it's mine, my history, but it's not. It's not. And yet, the reason is because it really wasn't my Oma's either. Right? Our true, our true connection, our true home and our true inheritance is eternal life in Christ. And so any homelessness that we feel this side of heaven should meant to turn our eyes to our faithful God. Any longing that we have for belonging, should be fulfilled in the people of God through one another as we look toward our faithful God. Because the Lord alone, he is the only one who provides his people with a sufficient savior, one that can truly save and make us part of his own family. And the Lord alone provides his people with a true inheritance that will not fade, that will never die, and that we we will have forever. Praise be to God, who is faithful to keep his promises. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, as we think of the covenant that you made with Moses, you said through Moses, I'm sorry, the covenant that you made with Abraham, that through Abraham's seed, all the world would be blessed. Father, remind us that, that we are inheritors of that truth. And by faith, we're both brothers and sisters of one another, but inheritors of this great promise, this great history that points to a great God. So we thank you, Father, for your mercy in our lives. We thank you for showing us yourself, calling us to yourself, and giving us a home, not only here in this world, through the indwelling of your spirit and in the church belonging to one another, but a forever home with you where we'll never be separated, where we'll be able to be with you face to face. Father, help that to be our hope. Help that to be our greatest joy and treasure. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.